0: Well, part two of the 30 for 30 series begins with uh, uh, we had an intimate atmosphere. I'm about to share with you a relatively intimate story. Probably 10, 12 years ago, we took about 100 people from the Freedom Center. We all went out west. It was a family missions trip. We served Pastor Albert Nez on the uh, Navajo reservations in in a town appropriately named Hard Rocks, Arizona. Uh, It's a town of about nobody, And and there's a church there. It's been there forever. It was a mission back in the day, and a school and has a cafeteria and dorms, and it all sounds really nice, except bad, bad, bad things happened there 50 years ago, and it never really has recovered spiritually. The The facilities were dilapidated. It was a mission made out of adobe at the turn of the century. That building still kind of exists, but there was actually a, a, a the basement underneath the sanctuary where bad things had happened, and they wouldn't even go down there. They just said, no, 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 it's... Well, what happened? they like, no, no, we, we don't speak of it. We just... Bad things. So we we went down there, cleaned it out, you know, both physically and spiritually, and they're using it. The church is doing well now and, and so forth. But I remember trying to kind of build a relationship with Pastor Nez, something I learned later on I should have never done because he's a terrible practical joker. And I didn't know this. He's a quiet man. How many of you guys know it's the quiet ones that always get you? You think Jeff Waltz is nice, but he's not. That's what I'm saying. He's watching probably right now from his hotel room in Florida. Wherever you are, Jeff, in the warm, balmy breezes of the Treasure Coast, we're, we all don't like you right now. So come home. We like you again. But Albert, um, or Pastor Nez, uh, we're building this relationship. And I said, is there anything to shoot around here? You know, guys want to shoot things. So is there anything we can shoot? Because you, you know, everything's a mile away. You've got to be good shots out here. He goes, yeah, we have prairie dogs and they get in our melon patch, and we shoot them, and it's a lot of fun. I said, well, that's, let's go shoot some. He goes, ah, we don't shoot some this time of year because they don't taste good. I said, oh, they, they taste good at some part of the year? It's a, it's a large, you know, oval rat. And he said, he said yeah, they, they, they taste good. I said, well, do they taste like, like chicken? He goes, no, they don't taste like chicken. I said, what do they taste like? He said, well, kind of like a porcupine. And I said, uh, yeah, not much porcupine up my way, you know, at the deli. I said, what else is it like? Is it like beef? No, it's not like beef. It's, it's kind of like when you roast a sheep's head in an open fire, that meat in the cheeks underneath the eye. And I'm like, listen, Albert, let me get something clear. If Oscar Mayer never made a sandwich out of it, I don't know what it tastes like. I, I have no idea. And he, he laughed. Well, I didn't know, but when I told him I thought the sheep's head idea was gross, he said, well, you know the part that's my favorite? And I said, "What?" Well, he goes, it's the eyeball. There's just something about that eyeball, man. When it gets roasted in the fire, it kind of shrinks up and congeals but when you bite into it, it, squirts like a cherry tomato and all those juices. Sometimes they drip out your mouth down your chest like, Albert, please, you know, bologna sandwich. Let's talk about bologna sandwiches. Let's not talk about this. The last day I come walking into the chow hall where most of the team has gathered and they have roasted a sheep in our honor. And there's tortillas and there's hot salsa and there's Navajo bread. And it's just this great final feast before we all hit the road and start driving and flying back to Michigan. And he walks in with a tray, and I'm just like making a Hey, guys, we're in prayer with the food. We want to thank our gracious. So All of a sudden, he walks in with a tray, and it's got a roasted sheep's head with the teeth that have all been charred by the, by the fire. Its tongue is like out, but it's shriveled back again, and there are these two nasty, gaping, burned eyes. And Albert takes a spoon. I mean, you guys are glad you skipped breakfast about now. And he gouges this thing's eye out of the orbital socket. He pulls it out. It's, it's, it's like a cherry tomato, but it's got a big dangly piece of wet optic nerve. And what I had told our team, how many you guys run that trip? You remember what I told you. No matter what they offer you to eat, you are to eat it because we are not going to be rude to our guests. And he stands in front of me, and all these people that just moments before were like, oh, Pastor Jim, uh, they all went from Hosanna to give us Barabbas, like, like that, And it was, eat it, eat it. And Albert's just smiling with this dangling, dripping piece of optic nerve, burned sheep's eyeball. And he never did this, so I assumed he wanted it for himself. That's not true. I knew he wanted me to eat it. And I just looked at him like, oh, dear God, I I don't, please don't. And you know what he did? After about 30 seconds of give us Barabbas and eat it, eat it, and all my friends turning on me, He popped it in his mouth, sucked up the octave nerve like like a piece of pasta, chewed it up, it squirted in his mouth, and he chewed it in front of me with his mouth open and smiled. And everybody around me was so disappointed they didn't get to see Pastor Jim throw up. (laughs) I gave him a hug. Here's here's the question. I gave him a great big hug, and I whispered something in his ear. Can anybody guess what I said to Pastor Nez because he ate the eyeball for me? Thank you. Who said that? I said, thank you. I actually, I whispered in his ear, I've now been saved twice, <laughs> once by Jesus and once by you. Now, think about that for a second. The natural response of when someone gets you out of a jam, when someone takes it for you, is gratitude. Now, put a pin in that and let's go back to this. Um, relationship with Jesus, it's, it's, we have to understand that your relationship with Christ is going to be an evolving thing. And, and the same thing was true, not just of, of us, but go all the way back to the disciples. There's an evolution of relationship. Everybody say relationship. Please understand that you will not grow closer to Christ by memorizing more of the rules. There's a relationship. I'm not saying we shouldn't memorize the rules. We certainly should. He has revealed his heart through his word, but knowing his word and obeying his word, now please hear me, please understand, knowing his word and doing the do's and not doing the don'ts is not necessarily the fruit of relationship. Relationship will produce a heart that doesn't do what we shouldn't do and does what we should. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm not in a relationship with my wife because she has a better lawyer than I do. But out of relationship, I have learned to behave in a way that pleases my wife and vice versa. In the same way, when we have a relationship with Jesus, it's strange how the things that are impossible, we're talking about this in two weeks, but the things that are impossible now concerning righteousness, you just, I just can't do it. The issue is not whether you can or can't do it. The question is, what do you love more? Because we'll always prefer what we prefer. We'll always do what comes first. We'll always want that which is greatest for our lives. And so when you see Jesus as greatest, you'll be shocked how easy it becomes to quit things that are hindering your walk with Christ. But if you try to get rid of the things that hinder your walk with Christ, what you'll find is the same thing you did with your New Year's resolution by now. I had a good idea. I had a fresh start. I had a clean slate. I tried it, and before long, I went right back to where I was. If we have a relationship, from relationship, behavior can be modified because of love. Love. If we have no relationship, behavior is seldom modified through the act of self-discipline. I'll give you an example. Women who, who uh, become pregnant change their behaviors that they could never change before. They smoke, they whatever, and it's just been part of their life. They're not bad, they're not just, but it's just, I smoke, I like to smoke, it's my thing. I'll quit one of these days. Smoking, you know, quitting smoking is the easiest thing I've ever done. I've done it a hundred times, right? But then they find out they're pregnant, and from that day on, they throw it away. Why? Because they love their baby more than they love themselves. And we find ourselves loving Jesus more than ourselves, we'll find ourselves not sinning like we used to. Are you still here? So when it comes to worship, there's this evolving relationship. And for a while, you just have to know, we're going to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is. We're going to grow in our experiences with Jesus. We say a prayer. He answers it. We come together to worship, and we just kind of sit in the back and watch. But now we're kind of in the front experiencing the Lord in different ways. We're going to grow in purity because that is the fruit of relationship, is becoming like the one we're in relationship with. The worst things you ever did? Don't don't just think about the worst thing you ever did. Think about the crowd you were running with when you did them, and you'll find out part of the reason you did what you did was because you're hanging with who you're hanging with. Now that's just true for our kids, but not us because we're grownups, right? I mean, anyway, we're going to grow. There's a growth that happens. Now, to the disciples, Jesus was a lot of things. At first, Jesus was just a rumor. Uh, We see that in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. There's this prophetic voice, and there's these magi that come from the east, and the story's being spread, but we're not really sure if they're true. It's all verbally kind of handed down. We've never met him. We don't know. But later then, Jesus becomes a reputation. Matthew chapter 3 He's he's there. Things are happening. He's baptizing people. John's there, and and they see him with their eyes. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the world, Uh, the sins of the world, not the world. Matthew chapters 4 and 8, he's casting out demons, so they know him to be the exorcist. Uh, He's a healer in Matthew 4, 8, 9, and really throughout the whole book of Matthew. He's the teacher in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He's doing miracles in Matthew chapter 8. He forgives sins. In Matthew chapter 9, like this is, they're they're starting to say, hey, this guy can do this and he can do that and he can do that. He's the resurrector of the dead. Now, this is getting to be pretty serious, right? It's not like, hey, he's a smart guy. It's like he's raising people from the dead, casting out demons, doing miracles. He's revealed to be the son of God in Matthew chapter 11. Um, In Matthew chapter 12, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 13 and 14, we find out he's human. His cousin John the Baptist is executed and he weeps. He's, his heart can be broken, he's not some machine. And then we find him multiplying loaves and fish in Matthew chapter 14. And so how many of you guys would agree? Jesus has done a lot of really significant stuff over a very long period of time, but Jesus is about to become something to the disciples who watched all of these things happen, and he's about to become something bigger. Because of something else he's about to do, and it's going to change their life. Now, look at this Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, this is after they fed the multitudes, everybody's exhausted. He puts on the boat, sends them out, he goes on the mountain to pray. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that evening, he was there, he was all alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land. It was buffeted by the waves because the wind, they were rowing into the wind. They were trying to sail into the wind, and the waves were pushing it back while the oars were pushing it forward. Now, shortly before dawn, so they've been doing this all night after an extraordinarily exhausting day feeding thousands of people. Before dawn, Jesus went out to them, and I love how the Bible just says it. He was walking on the water, (laughs) walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they said, Hey, that's cool. Come here. Tell us how to do it. Is that what they did? No. They did what we would have done. It's a ghost, right? They're terrified, and they cried out in fear. I would have loved to have seen that, knowing the rest of the story. But Jesus immediately said to them, I don't operate in fear. I operate in faith. Take courage. It's me, guys. Don't be afraid of me. No matter how weird it is, if it's me, don't be afraid. Just know that it's me. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, Come, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down onto the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Now, is this the first time Jesus has done weird stuff? He's, they've seen him do a lot of weird stuff, multiplying loaves and fish, healing, delivering, exercising demons. He says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, here's my question. What just happened after all the 14 chapters leading up to that moment? What just happened between the disciples' relationship with Jesus that has never happened up to this point in Scripture? Anybody? Now, now they saw him do miracles, right? Right? and they marveled at a miracle worker. They heard Him teach, and they marveled at a teacher. They saw Him exercise demons, and they marveled at His authority. But they've just done something. Look at that screen. They've just done something they've never done before. Anybody know what it is? They worshiped Him. Understand this. Please hear me. When Jesus saved them, the disciples didn't worship. When Jesus healed them, the disciples didn't worship. When Jesus fed them, the disciples didn't worship. But when Jesus saved the disciples, are you still here? I want you to get this. One of the reasons we don't engage Jesus in worship is because we don't yet know how worthy he is because we haven't fully grasped his mercy. We haven't fully contacted his love. Um, Let let me just go so far as to say this. People that don't know Jesus don't worship him because they don't know Jesus. Jesus. People that do know Jesus, and and to the degree they know Jesus, we're going to see in just a moment, the more they know Jesus, the more Jesus has done for them, the more their sins have been forgiven, the more they contact who He has experienced Him, it it evolves how they feel about God, and their expressions change as those experiences change. Are you still here this morning? Now, Now get this. When Jesus was the teacher, they didn't worship, even though He taught things that had never been heard before. When Jesus was the miracle worker, they didn't worship. When Jesus was the exorcist, they didn't worship. When Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, did what he did, his disciples didn't worship. But the first time, they thought they were going to die, and he saved them. They said to Jesus what I said to Pastor Nez. Thank you. Understand this. If you're drowning and some person jumps in the water to rescue you, once you gasp that first lung full of air after all the seaweed comes out and the seawater, and you look into the eyes of the one who just rescued you, you're not going to say, so do I have to give 10% of my income now? How, how, how many times do I have to go to church before I'm a good person? How many times do I have to go to lifeguard school before I'm a good person? What are the requirements? To be, do I, is it like just a Christmas card? Just just an Easter card is that sufficient to, to keep our connection? How many guys know what you're going to do is you're going to look into the eyes of the person that just risked his life to save yours, and very naturally with your first breath you are going to say. See, worship is a lot more than we imagine it to be. Sometimes, sometimes we think it's this formal setting with. A certain environment with a certain type of music at a, a preferred volume and a preferred genre and a preferred set of instruments oh that's my favorite worship leader that's my favorite song that's my favorite place to worship but i think as we get deeper into understanding what worship really is i think it's far more simple and less formal and less elaborate than we could have ever imagined i'm not saying you can't worship in a setting like this we certainly can I'm saying if we think this is worship and outside of this there's a secular life we live apart from the formality of music and structure and screens, hear me, guys. We're missing 95% of the opportunities to give God glory. And the primary objective of man is to glorify his Savior. So think about it this way. Um, Jesus actually associated the amount of worship with the amount of what had been forgiven. Let me show you this, another portion in Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. Worship team, join me again if you would, please. She kissed them, and she poured out perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would know who's touching him, and what what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. It is interesting, isn't it, that that if this man knew, if he was really something, he's looking to discount who Jesus was. So he saw evidence that he, he can't tell how bad she is, so he's not really who he claims to be or who I might have hoped he was, because he doesn't know he's being touched by a sinner. I would also point out to you, it's interesting how comfortable she felt in his home. Just saying. She's a sinner. How does he know that exactly? And why is she so comfortable in his home? Let's, let's find out, okay? Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. That's the, the Pharisee. Tell me, teacher. He said, he goes, here you go. Okay, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him about a year and a half worth of wages, and the other one about a month and a half worth of wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, yeah, you you've judge correctly. Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Here's what happened. I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet. Just a common courtesy. You walk around, sandals, dust, dirt, animal dung. You didn't meet me with this common courtesy, but she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, you didn't greet me warmly with an affectionate touch, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't extend me the courtesy of giving me some oil to put on my head, Again, just a a common courtesy for an honored guest. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Now, stop here for a second. Are her sins forgiven because she's loving him? No, she's loving him because her sins are forgiven. And he says that, as her great love has shown. See, whoever's been forgiven little their expression will be small, their emotion will be small, their commitment will be small, their sacrifice will be small, because they, it's like, yeah, I had Jesus improved my life. You know, it used to, be, used to be this, but now with Jesus, it's actually, it's actually it's gotten better. There's demands, there's requirements, there's, I don't have as much free time, and, you know, we're always trying to feed kids in Haiti, and there's always, you know, another outreach. But I mean, it's, overall, I, I would say that by putting Jesus, I, adding salt to my eggs, it made him this much better to eat. He says, But uh, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now the other guests began to say, wait a minute, you know, you can't do that. Who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Understand this, guys. If you feel like Jesus has added something to your life that's worthy of a day a month, that's worthy of, um, you know, a, a portion of proceed, that's worthy of, you know, a Christmas card that doesn't say Xmas on it, but Christmas on it, and little pictures of wise men. If your if your your depth of gratitude towards Christ goes towards the inflatable manger scene in your front yard, or putting a fish on your business card, or you understand that what what it reveals to me in my own heart when I give Jesus this is that I've made the mistake of believing He gave me this too. Like this is the difference He made in my life, so this is how grateful I am back to Him. But when you realize. Jesus did this, it changes the depth of the water in which you stand. Does that make sense? When you recognize that no one has been forgiven little, and let's say you only committed one sin, which believing that would be an arrogant sin in itself, but let's say, let's say other than self-denial, self-deception, lying to me, that was the only sin that that you committed. Do you understand that it still took the life of the Son of God to forgive the sin? And maybe... If you're like me, the further I walk with the Lord, the more I realize not just the work that's been done, but the work that's left to be done. Is that too honest? You guys want a perfect pastor? Tough. The more I get closer to what truth is, the more I realize how wrong bending it might be. The more I get closer to holiness, the more I realize simple things I thought were okay. Jesus is saying, I I want something better for you than that. Things that, that... it would have been quantum leaps forward for me 30 years ago Um, and I took those quantum leaps but now it's like I'm realizing let me say it this way I'm realizing that it took a lot of mercy to get me saved amen I'm realizing it even takes more to keep me saved because the more I know about who he is the more I realize who I'm not and the more his perfection is required on my imperfection the more I need a good father the more I need a just king, the more I need a merciful savior, the more I know Jim Wiegand, the more I must know Jesus. And so I don't think there's anybody that's been forgiven little. I just think there's people that acknowledge little things that have been forgiven when there's a, there's a huge thing that God wants to do in your life. We're gonna partake of communion together here in a few moments. And I, the Bible says that before we partake of these things, we should prepare our hearts. And so those will be serving communion, just give me two more minutes before you come up. The preparation of our heart is to recognize two things, the body and the blood of Christ. What we're supposed to do is, is realize our, our need for a savior to acknowledge the elements God used in the physical body of Jesus to take our sins away from us, place it on that physical body, the body, the shed blood of Jesus. And so we would recognize that. It isn't recognizing how good we are, it's recognizing how great he is. Communion is a humbling time. It's a it's a communion, common union. Doesn't matter if you're the best person who ever lived in this room or the worst person who ever lived in this room. We all need the body and the blood of Christ. It's it's what brings all the different demographics, all the different age groups, all the socioeconomic classes, all the good people, bad people, average people, extraordinary people into one pool of people that just simply need the mercy of a loving God. And I want you to examine yourself before we partake of communion today because I think I think those who've been forgiven much will find the evolution of their walk with Christ greatly outpacing those who just think he's salt on your eggs. Jesus is not a swimming coach. Jesus is a lifeguard. And without him, you will die. I think we've made a terrible mistake, and I'll use an illustration that's quite famous, although I'm sure most of you have never heard it. There was a man that uh, got on a plane, and as the stewardess came down the aisle with her card, he noticed there weren't the typical drinks and pretzels and snacks, there were parachutes. And he said, ma'am, can I ask you a question? Why are you giving out parachutes? And she smiled at him and said, oh, these parachutes will make your life so much better. They'll make your marriage work, they'll make your finances prosper. They'll be divine, you know, almost instantaneous blessing you just cannot contain if you wear this parachute. And so the man says, well, I'd like that. Give me that. And so she puts the parachute on. The guy next to him says, no, thanks. I'm fine the way I am. And he doesn't want a parachute. But halfway through the flight, the man who has less leg room now because of the, the weight, because of the straps, because of the... The, the the width of the parachute. It, it's it's itchy. It's heavy. It's hard. It's it's not what he thought it was going to be. And he looks at the man next to him, who doesn't have a parachute. And he, and he comments are, are you comfortable? He goes yeah, I'm great. He goes man, I'm I'm not. I'm hot. I'm, I'm uncomfortable. There's a weight to this. It's itchy. And the, and he takes it off and kind of puts it at his feet because I really didn't need this parachute. It, it didn't improve my life at all. But then there's another scenario. Same plane. Same stewardess. Same things on the cart she walks by she has parachutes the man inquires why do you have parachutes she said because the plane that we're in before we get to our destination is going to lose power and it's going to crash and everybody who doesn't have a parachute will die how many guys know at that point you want a parachute and when the weight comes and when the heat comes and when the itchy comes and when the lack of legroom comes You wear it gladly because you realize without this I will perish. For some reason we've thought Christianity was about us. For some reason we've made church for the consumer, not for the consumed. For some reason we've believed that it has to be done in a Burger King sort of my way or the highway. I, my preferences are, so I'm looking for a church that, and I just want to, and, and I get all that, but understand this Jesus is never a product to be consumed. He is the fire that will consume your life. His spirit, his, his words, His heart, what He's done for us demands our utmost for His highest. He gave everything so that we would have a parachute because we will someday perish. And at that moment, we will either be rescued by Jesus, our our weight, our burden, our cross, our our Savior, our friend, our King, or we will perish with that which is crashing and perishing. Today, I want you to prepare your hearts to receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'll say this to you. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be, you know, a, a Protestant or a Catholic or a uh, a Methodist or a Baptist or a Pentecostal. What you need to be is someone who is, is celebrating elements that are already at work in your life. Your relationship with Jesus will evolve, but the anchor of that is what he's done for you. And those who've been forgiven much, are you still here? Those who've been forgiven much will find the fruit of their life loving him, thanking him. He ate the burned eyeball with the dangling optic nerve and when you embrace him you will whisper in his ear thank you stand your feet please those who will be serving us communion this morning please come to the front Everybody else just hold for a moment corporate worship happens wherever there are two or more people who gather together whose sins have been forgiven worship happens where any individual that recognizes the body and blood of Christ recognizes what they've done, what he's done, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our peace. By his stripes, we're healed, baptized in his Holy Spirit, sent into the world aflame. Um these are the, the elements of Christianity, but this is the element of Christ. If you don't know him, before you receive, if you choose to at all, you need to give your life to jesus and be grateful for what he's done and i mean this don't just do it because the person next to you is doing it and well it's a religious thing it's not a ceremony god takes this as an extraordinary moment please do not treat what god treats extraordinary as ordinary the consequences of treating things that are holy as if they're common are biblically profound that's not to scare you it's to sober you to understand we hold in our hands what Jesus sees as his body and his blood, all the power that's in that cup to forgive sins, all the power that's in that, that bread to, to, to take away the sins of mankind. And so I'm going to pray. When I've prayed, I think we're going to put up a really clear graphic, if not, no big deal. Basically, all I have to do is get to the front. There's three stations on this side. There's three stations on this side. And we're going to take a time, a season of worship. Please receive the elements. You're going to go back to your seat. We're going to talk a little bit more, and then we're going to partake. According to that clock, I still have 10 minutes left. How many guys are glad? We're going to. Who said woo? God forgive her before she communion, whoever that was. So let's pray. Father, I ask that in this room, a revelation of your love and what that love cost you, and what that love has done for those who receive. I pray, God, that, that although we may have taken communion hundreds, even thousands of times in our life, and we do this for the first time, open our eyes to what it really means to be yours. How can we consume your body and your blood without at the same time offering you our body and our blood for your glory? Let us not partake of something lightly, let us partake of it with just a solemnness in our heart. It's not just some sort of Christian tradition, a ceremony. It's the renewing of a covenant. It's a continual I will because you will not stop loving me. And I pray today, God, you would give us insights into the body and blood of Christ that will last for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. If we continue to go back towards worship, they're here to serve you. Find your way to the front. Find your way back, stand, sit, it's up to you, whatever you're comfortable with, and uh, we'll partake in just a few moments together.